I would like to warn you that this episode of Off the Watch List is spoiler-filled. So, if you've seen the movie, or you just don't care, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Off the Watch List, a podcast about the movies that we have no excuse for missing. My name is Luke. My name is Sophia. And what movie did you watch this week, Luke? I watched West Side Story, specifically the 1961 version. See, okay, I have much background and many facts. <laughs> so, yes, we are talking about the 1961 movie, which was an adaptation of the 1957 Broadway musical. So, uh, that's another kind of quick turnaround there from, yeah. from musical to movie. The cool thing about that was a lot of the creators of the original. Broadway production were also very heavily involved in the movie, in some cases, even some of the same actors, but we'll get more into that. You're pretty knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. <laughs> was West Side Story on Broadway like a big hit when it first came out? Yeah, it, it really was. Um, it was very, very critically acclaimed when it first came out and then obviously very uh, just popular as well. Otherwise, I don't know that they're would have been a movie so soon after. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, it was directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. And Robbins is also credited with developing the idea for the original Broadway production. So he was the one who kind of came up with a concept and then got oh, the other main creators on board. Um, Robert Wise has a history in film musicals. Oh, cool, cool. Like he did uh, The Sound of Music. But there, there's like four kind of main people who are who are credited as the creators of, of West Side Story and that is Jerome Robbins, Arthur Lawrence. Lawrence? I am unsure. Okay. Let's go with Lawrence. Lawrence. Maybe Lawrence. I don't know. Uh, Stephen Sondheim and Leonard Bernstein. It was the highest grossing film of 1961. It was nominated for 11 Academy Awards and of those it won 10. Wow. The only one it did not win was Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. Mm. And with those 10 Academy Awards, it has won more Oscars than any other musical film. So that's I remember its record. in 2016, La La Land broke the West Side Story record for nominations because gotcha. La La Land got 14 nominations. Mm -hmm. So not most nominated, but still most won. All right. Uh, the film turned 60 this year. And to celebrate, and then also probably just because <laughs> uh, Steven Spielberg released a remake on December 10th of this year, which I have not seen yet, but I've heard it is very good. I have not seen. Uh, but yeah, for everyone I know who's seen it, it says it's amazing. And I can see how like a remake of this material could be really, really good just in terms mm -hmm. of the movie is so old Hollywood with its colors and everything. I'm mm -hmm. sure we'll get into this, but I can see how like with modern day digital cameras and all these different things, how much more you can do visually mm -hmm. and how that can be tempting from like a filmmaking perspective. Like how else can we shoot these big dance scenes? Yeah, absolutely. So the music was written by Leonard Bernstein and I have much to say about him <laughs> uh, because he is just a genius and a titan. He was one of the most accomplished and skilled musicians of the 20th century. He was, I think, 
I would I would say most famously, he was the conductor and the music director of the New York Philharmonic. He was the first American born to hold that position. Ooh. He was also an incredible pianist and a composer. And he was also known for, uh, during his tenure at the New York Phil, conducting piano concertos while playing the piano. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how is that possible? I'm not sure. And, and so he is fascinating to me as just a, an artist in general because his music is really fun to listen to. Mm. Like I just love his compositional style. And in kind of his entire life, you know, if you look at, at his life and then his work as a whole, there's just a lot of boundary crossing or, or yeah, between different mediums, between different genres, f- between different professions even and kind of defying expectations in doing so. So like I like I said, he was an excellent composer, conductor, performer, and a humanitarian. And to excel at his level in any one of those avenues (laughs) would require pretty much lifelong exclusive commitment from most people. But he just did all of them to this extremely high level. And he really refused to sacrifice any of them in in pursuit of the others, which is something that I really admire. Interesting. You also see that a lot in his music composition, which frequently combines elements of various contrasting musical traditions. It it really defies clear-cut genre boundaries, which is kind of why West Side Story really stood out to me. Even, you know, it, it has for years just in its compositional style is because the music is brilliantly composed and it's a really really good soundtrack yeah but it's odd because it's to me it has always sounded just slightly too symphonic to be a traditional broadway soundtrack but slightly too theatrical and jazzy to be considered classical music mm-hmm. so it doesn't it doesn't quite fit either of those molds in my opinion it's somewhere in the middle which is is what leonard bernstein did Best. And it, it really makes West Side Story kind of stand in a league of its own in terms of just Broadway soundtracks. Yeah. Also, I feel like this movie in particular, the way that the movie soundtrack is recorded, mm-hmm. really kind of set the standard for what we consider to be like big Hollywood music mm-hmm. nowadays. Like listening to this, I feel like you could play it over footage of like 1950s Hollywood and it would just make sense. (laughs) Probably, yeah. So he really liked blurring those lines between genres and styles uh, and also between notions of, quote, high and low music. You know, you have there's there's a lot of schools of thought, you know, like a a Beethoven symphony is is high class music or Mm -hmm. highbrow music. And then, you know, vaudeville would be lower class music yeah. uh, and he kind of said well no to all of that and and just mixed all those up and created just really really unique and eclectic compositions that are again are just a blast to listen to one of my favorite uh, pieces for wind ensemble of all time a slava exclamation point <laughs> was written by <laughs> leonard bernstein mm. and it's it's slava a political overture it's really fun. You should listen to it. <laughs> yeah, he, so he uses elements of jazz, classical, popular music, frequently also employs Jewish musical traditions. He himself was Jewish. And then West Side Story itself plays with a lot of kind of unconventional music ideas. So the Maria theme in particular is built on the interval of the tritone. And the tritone is interesting <laughs> because for much of Western musical history, oh, a, a tritone is either an augmented fourth or a diminished fifth. 
It's the same interval. For those um, non-musical people listening, can you translate what any of those things I'm gonna are? I'm going to try. Okay, so if you think of a piano keyboard, uh-huh. the interval between one between two keys next to each other, two white keys next to each other, uh-huh. in most cases, is a major second. Uh-huh. And then, you know, if it's you skip one white key, then it's a it's third. third. Yeah. So just in, in basic intervals. And then and then the black keys in most cases are, are half indicate half steps. Yeah. So you can if you get just a basic interval, like a third, you can raise or lower it by going one half step in either direction. And that creates a harmony with the bass note. Right. Yeah. 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 A, a tritone is if you take a fourth and raise it by a half step or if you take a fifth and lower it by a half step. And it's a very, very dissonant and unstable interval. The main point of this <laughs> uh, is the tritone for much of Western musical history was either taboo or outright forbidden by the church <laughs> oh. because it used to be considered a musical mark of the devil. A lot of those composers who spent most of their lives composing for their local churches, like Handel was one of them, you don't see tritones anywhere because it was literally not allowed. <laughs> Interesting. Could you imagine yeah. what type of music would have been made if they had allowed tritones? And so even even outside of that context, it is very dissonant and unstable. And so to use it so prominently is a huge departure from most Western musical conventions. Um, gotcha. And then the song Somewhere is built on a minor seventh. The there's a place for us which is a more subtle but still pretty dissonant and therefore very uncommon interval. You don't really get a lot of melodic motion that relies so heavily on those intervals, but, you know, he just plops them right in there and then writes an entire score based on So it's like a very unusual score just generally in terms of what was accepted at the time or was traditional musically. Yeah, and, you know, that's what what Leonard Bernstein did. Gotcha. um, And and there's a saying that's very popular in jazz in particular where you have to know the rules before you can break them. So he... He was just a, a theory genius and was so knowledgeable about musical practices and traditions and, and like Western music theory, all that. Uh, but then he spent a lot of his compositional life kind of pushing those boundaries and figuring out what he could do that was different from what everybody mm. else was doing and started breaking a lot of those rules and blurring those lines. And that's, that's how you get his very distinctive style. Gotcha. All right. So that's Leonard Bernstein <laughs> and we're going to move on to Stephen Sondheim who just passed away recently. Mm. I think just about a month or so ago. He was another American musical giant. You know, people will put him up there with Shakespeare in terms of, you know, just the grasp of the English language and the brilliance with which he uses it. West Side Story was his Broadway debut. So this was the first time he had written lyrics for a show on Broadway. He was apparently not fully satisfied with the lyrics he wrote for the show because they didn't always... He he has said that they didn't always suit the characters he wanted them to. Interesting. Yeah. And this is something that he spoke about a couple times where he had kind of this rule for himself in, in writing lyrics where he would not, if you've got like this scene where a bunch of characters are all singing together or like an ensemble number, he would do everything in his power to 
not assign a lyric to a character unless the lyric was true for that character, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. He was actually, I did not know this before researching, but he was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein, who was the lyricist for Oklahoma, South Pacific, The Sound of Music, which which were other like huge, huge Broadway shows, just, you know, the generation before <laughs> Sondheim. Uh, and he and... Um, Rogers, Richard mm. Rogers, Richard Rogers, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. We're kind of this, this music lyrics powerhouse duo, but yeah. So Oscar Hammerstein mentored him in composition and writing for Broadway. And it was actually like a surrogate father figure to him and developed his love of mm. musical theater. And I, I didn't know that nice. they had, because those are two of the greatest lyricists of all time in Broadway. And I, I didn't know that they had, you know, such a deep personal Makes connection. Sense, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, a quick little fact about uh, Leonard Bernstein. Sure, sure. In this movie, the two main female characters in the film, Maria and Anita, are played by Natalie Wood and Rita, Rita Moreno, respectively. Mm -hmm. And they, they do the acting, but the actual singing that particularly Maria's character, Natalie Wood, is dubbed over by a woman named Marnie Nixon. For both of them? Um, Marnie Nixon, however, did one number for Anita. Because there's one song where Anita's voice has to go a little bit higher than than Rita Moreno was used to. And so because of that, Marnie Nixon, who did the, the dubbing, demanded from the studio a cut of the album royalties. Mm -hmm. However, the studio was like, no, like we're not going to give you it. And they had this like stalemate. And Leonard Bernstein solved it by sacrificing a cut of his portion. Right. Uh, so he gave Marnie Nixon some of his income mm -hmm. from the album sales to solve that stalemate. So kind of yeah. class move by Leonard Bernstein. Seems like a nice guy. He was a pretty cool guy. And the reason he did that actually was because he knew Marnie Nixon because Marnie Nixon had been a performer of his at the New York Phil. Nice. I did not know that. I did. I do remember reading. Apparently Natalie Wood was told that Marnie Nixon would only be dubbing a few of her lines like for pitch problems and in range but then they had her sing all of all of the songs <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> which would be very sad for Natalie Wood <laughs> well you know um, a real singing in the rain situation there <laughs> yeah so the last thing I wanted to touch on before going into some fun facts was just the fact that I mean, this, the show on Broadway and then now in film has been revived multiple times and, and it's had to go through some layers of reworking in each new version to address different issues with previous versions. For example, the lyrics to the song America were changed in the movie version just a few years after the Broadway version, mm -hmm. after criticism that the original words were overly critical of Puerto Rico which led to a reworking with new lyrics that focused more on the racism that Puerto Ricans experienced in America rather than them like kind of dumping on their home country. It's just <laughs> pretty so good. good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so they did change some things even from first Broadway to first movie. The movie still had its share of problems. I think one of the most prominent ones and the most serious is uh, the casting of white actors in Puerto Rican roles. Mm -hmm. Natalie Wood, I believe was Russian. Her accent is pretty notorious for how bad it was, <laughs> um, and they it's used not great. yeah, and and they used makeup to darken the skin tones of a lot of the actors, uh, and even Rita Moreno, who actually is Puerto Rican, has spoken a lot publicly about the fact that she was also asked to darken her skin tone. Yeah, and so that's you know that's something that. It, it wasn't right back then, uh, right. and it, it absolutely doesn't hold up today. And it's it's a strange thing because, you know, the show has this message of 
anti-racism and of tolerance and acceptance. Uh, and I, I honestly believe that, you know, the creators of the show totally really yeah. believed in that message and, and that their, their intentions were good when making the film, but that doesn't mean that they didn't make some mistakes and make some pretty serious mistakes. And, um, mm. I think it's good that it is still being, the show is still being revived and those issues are being fixed in subsequent versions so that that message can still be communicated without, you know, the, the elements of, of hypocr hypocrisy that were present in some earlier versions. Hmm. All right. So I've got some fun facts. Um, Jerome Robbins when they were casting the movie version, he wanted Carol Lawrence, who originated the role of Maria on Broadway, to play the same role in the movie. Mm -hmm. But after doing a screen test, it was agreed that she was too old for the part. Oh. How old do you think she was? I'm going to lowball it. I'm sorry. 26? She was 29. <laughs> However, a good number of other actors from the Broadway and West End productions did actually end up getting cast in the film, which is Kind of cool. Uh, Elvis Presley was approached for the role of Tony, but his manager turned it down. Also in consideration was Warren Beatty, who Ooh. would go on to star in Bonnie and Clyde. See yeah. our previous episode. Actually, that would have been interesting because he became a big star right after Bonnie and Clyde. And mm -hmm. so this might have propelled him so he wasn't in Bonnie and Clyde in the first place. That would have been a fascinating twist of fate. I, I mentioned kind of at the very beginning that Jerome Robbins was the one who came up with you know, kind of the whole idea for the show. So his original pitch for the show involved an Irish Catholic boy and a Jewish girl living on the Lower East Side during the Easter slash Passover season, oh, interesting. which would have been kind of cool. If if that version had been made, <laughs> it would have been called East Side Story. <laughs> that was actually the working title. <laughs> I got to make this now. Yeah. In 2009, Lin-Manuel Miranda contributed. I know that guy. I know him too, not personally. No, but no I would like him. to. <laughs> if you listen to this podcast and you want to get an interview, Lynn Noah. <laughs> uh, he contributed heavily to a bilingual West Side Story revival um, by translating large sections of the shark's dialogue into Spanish, uh, which was kind of cool. So they, they did this production, but then in, in scenes where it was just the sharks on stage or singing, like they, they all spoke in Spanish as they would in real life. Um, and also helped rewrite some elements of the original script that included some of those stereotypical and insensitive depictions of the quirk. Puerto Rican characters. During development of the Broadway musical, Jerome Robbins forbade the actors playing sharks and jets from interacting offstage, and he even had the groups rehearse in separate rooms. Oh. Yeah. Uh, which led to this, like, kind of sense of unfamiliarity yeah. and tension between the two groups on stage, which, of course, was the goal. <laughs> Although I've, there are rumors that there was at least one actual like romance between the two groups <laughs> in real life Ooh. yeah man okay wait someone has to write a movie about that would that be hilarious that would be this two group two groups of actors that were forbidden from interacting on a production of west side story but they do interact uh -huh. but two of them do and fall in love i gotta get on this you should this is a fun one so stephen sondheim in intended for west side story to be the first ever broadway show to use the f word I heard about this. <laughs> Which would have happened at the end of the song, G. Officer Krupke. However, they realized that due to censorship laws of the day, this would have actually prohibited the soundtrack album from being distributed across state lines. That would not be good. Yeah, which would have, you know, greatly affected the revenue that they were able to 
acquire from the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. So the line was changed to, gee, Officer Krupke, Krupp you. <laughs> which I got to laugh at. Which is objectively much funnier. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Especially yeah. the idea of like all these guys saying that. And they all come up with that line at the same time. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So the BBC still banned the song, though, which is sad. Um, (laughs) Offensive language like Krupp. Maybe they thought it would corrupt their audiences. (laughs) Corrupt. Thank you for joining us for Off the Watch List. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a fact. What? You mentioned uh, Elvis almost being cast as Tony. Uh-huh. Another famous performer who was also almost cast was Aud- Audrey Hepburn, was almost cast as Maria, mm-hmm. uh, but she was pregnant at the time, so she turned it down. So imagine West Side Story starring Audrey Hepburn and Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So that concludes my background and facts. Nice. Uh, so let's jump into the summary. So West Side Story is a two and a half hour movie, like we mentioned. It's like got a lot to it, but I feel like even though it's a two and a half hour movie, it's probably an 80 or 90 minute story. The opening five minutes in the movie is an orange screen with black lines slowly appearing in the shape of the Manhattan Island. That's what the first five minutes are as the overture plays. And so it shows... But can we appreciate the fact that there is an overture? Absolutely. And so what I was about to say is it shows like the distinction between theater and film as an art form. Mm -hmm. You open a show with an overture number on the black stage or whatever. Like You can do that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, On film, you normally don't do that because, I mean, you have access to visual as a medium. But with film, you have like the camera and you can put it in places and film things and like... Uh, show the world and stuff like that. And so it's interesting that they just open it on an orange screen because there are lots of moments that are kind of just like indulging in the dance and mm-hmm. the music, which honestly I love. Like that's great. It really does bring the sense of like grand Hollywood movie or like like big stage production to this. Leonard Bernstein wrote two and a half hours of fantastic music and said we're keeping all of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh the move after after that long sequence of orange screen, the movie opens with the iconic snapping. Tough guy finger snapping. Tough guy finger snapping as the subtitles say. This is when you're introduced to the Jets, which is the first gang that you meet in this like I think it's like a 10 minute dance sequence. That sounds about right. But we we meet the front and center character that we meet is played by Ruff Oh, sorry, excuse me, Russ Tamblin, uh, whose character's name is Riff. I combined Russ with Riff to make Ruff. Our, um, um, I'm pretty sure, and I will I will send this episode to him when it comes out, but our high school band director or mm. orchestra director. If, if you're me and cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I, I remember him telling us how he played Riff in high school. <laughs> But yeah, so we, we meet this main character, Riff, who he's very clearly established as kind of like the leader of the of the Jets. And kind of quick, fun, fast fact about uh, Russ Tamblin, the actor behind Riff. He did not like his dancing in the movie because he wasn't a dancer. And he was very unsatisfied with his dancing until the premiere of the movie where Fred Astaire was at the premiere. And Fred Astaire came over, no, uh, certified nice person Fred Astaire, came over to him at the premiere and let him know that he thought his dancing was very, very nice. 
And so oh, uh, thanks, Fred. that changed Russ Tamblin's mind when Fred Astaire said he danced well. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we go through this opening sequence where we see the Jets <laughs> Fred kind of... Fred just being nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it was great. You did, you did a really good job, bud. <laughs> good job, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, he's, he's great in the movie. But uh, yeah. we established the Jets as kind of like the rulers of the street in this area. Another fast fact, I'm just shooting them off left and right here. They come across two kids playing basketball and they steal their basketball and like play for themselves like during the dance it's number. That's so mean. Um, and they toss, as they leave, they toss the basketball back to the kids. And the mm-hmm. kid who catches the basketball, but he's played by Kit Culkin, who is the father of Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin. Who, oh my if gosh. you don't know, is the is Kevin from Home Alone. So that's just kind of a interesting genealogy there. That is there. pretty cool. So as they're kind of dancing down the street, they come across Bernardo, who they kind of bully around a little bit. Bernardo is a Puerto Rican. They kind of push him around, and Bernardo runs away, and they're, like, calling him chicken and running him after him and stuff like that. And he runs away and meets up with his little gang, who are called the Sharks. Mm-hmm. And so the whole opening sequence is this, like, like pseudo-dance battle, but, like, back and Ballet. forth. Yeah, ballet, I suppose, between the sharks and the jets. Ballet. As they b- battle So you just said. Yep. Oh. <laughs> I'm sticking um, to it. <laughs> yeah, this like this like pseudo or like b- back and forth where the sharks gang stumbles upon three jets members and chase them around until all the other jets come and then the sharks run away and then more sharks come like like back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> There's like a Looney Tunes sequence. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. <laughs> And they're, they're like, like one of them is like chasing the other with like an axe, and then the other one is like running away, and then like comes back with like a bigger axe, and then it's <laughs> definitely that vibe. But that's that's kind of the the opening scene, and then it ends when the police roll up, and the two recurring police characters, Lieutenant Shrank is his name, and Officer Krupke, uh, who we previously mentioned, uh, they arrive and kind of uh, break up this like this brawl dance battle thing that's going on. And so the Jets decide in a meeting after the the police leave, the Jets decide that in order to reclaim their streets, because this 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 block is their block, in order to reclaim their streets, they're going to challenge the Sharks to a rumble, which is this uh, big fight. And they're going to talk to them at the, they say it's like the dance at the gym tonight. Yeah. Riff is going to meet with Bernardo. And have a war council about what weapons are allowed at the Rumble. And they say they have to show their strength at the dance. And Riff is going to go get his best friend, Tony, who is, he says he's the co-founder of the Jets, but who's no longer a part of the gang. And he's going to, like, invite him to the dance so that he can be there to kind of show their strength. They're just going to dance so much better than those other guys. Oh, yeah, especially with Tony around. <laughs> and so <laughs> Riff, Riff goes to see Tony. And it's really interesting because kind of interesting side story about Tony and his actor, who's uh, he's played by uh, Richard Bamer is his name. Uh, yeah, kind of fun fact about Richard Bamer is that Natalie Wood, the actress who plays Maria, who eventually becomes Tony's love interest, she in her dressing room had a list of people that she uh, she did not get along with. And on <laughs> that hit list, list. <laughs> on that list was uh, Richard Bamer. And he, he never knew it. Uh, he had later described that she the entire time had treated him a little coldly during the shooting. Uh-huh. And he didn't know that he was on this list until he was working with Russ Tamblin again on the David Lynch show Twin Peaks. <laughs> and Russ Tamblin told him about it. That's Although amazing. Bramer did later clarify that he had ran into 
uh, Natalie would at like a, a show or like a bar or something later. And she had been very kind and very pleasant to him. So Bamer said it might have had something to do with a screen test that they had done on a previous film that didn't go very well. Hmm. So maybe he ruined like a role for her and she didn't get a role because of him. She was salty about it or something. It's like that scene in The Office <laughs> where Ryan's keeping a list of everyone who wronged him <laughs> so that he can take revenge when he's back on top. Yes. That's, and then he uh, has that talking head where he just silently writes down Jim's name and looks into the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine them having just like. I don't know. He's just like, he's just like grouchy during one day of filming or something. She just storms back to her dressing room. Richard. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we meet Tony here and Riff invites Tony to the dance. um, And we immediately get that Riff and Tony are very, very close. Uh, They have like code words and stuff like that. But Tony doesn't want to go. He says he has a job now. He's like escaped the gang life or whatever. But Riff kind of implores him to go. And Riff asks Tony, like, what are you waiting for? What are you looking for? Like, you're looking for a girl. You might meet one at the dance kind of thing. They have girls there, Tony. (laughs) And so Tony naturally agrees to go. (laughs) Um, uh, And so they, they go to the dance and. Doesn't Tony have like a moment where he's like just sense like something important is about to happen. He, he quite literally says he senses something important Wait, is coming. Wait, are you serious? Yep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I should have written this movie. So they, they, they go to the dance and at the dance, there's like kind of another sort of dance battle between the two gangs where they have like their two days. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's like this big red room, uh, which is kind of reminiscent. There's a dance scene in um, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is also in a bright red room. So kind of interesting. I don't know. This is Mambo, I believe. The song? Yeah. 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 And so there's, yeah, there's this like this contrasting dance battle and whoever's running the dance says, we're going to try something new. We're going to have all the girls in the middle form a circle and all the guys on the outside form a circle and the circles are going to move in opposite directions. And whenever the music starts, you dance with the person in front of you. So kind of like an icebreaker challenge sort of thing. And Hmm. uh, so that starts happening. Musical chairs, but. Musical dance partners. Yeah, m- musical dance partners. And so this is kind of like an effort to get the uh, the sharks and the jets to get along. And during this kind of dance sequence, it sort of it sort of goes to chaos. But as that's happening, Tony shows up and sees Maria across the room, <laughs> and the camera gets really shallow focus, and no one, nothing else from Tony's perspective is in focus except for Maria. Like the skies part, and <laughs> it's yeah, like and a beam of doves. sunlight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and one thing I like is um, the Wikipedia article for the plot summary as I was like reviewing it mm-hmm. described it as. Tony arrives, he and Maria fall in love instantly. <laughs> um, oh, and so they start dancing together. And <laughs> that, Sorry, that just reminds me. My family and I went to see Les Mis. Mm-hmm. And there's that line in A Heart Full of Love where, because that's like, this changed. Can people really fall in love so fast? And both my dad and my sister, <laughs> the exact same deadpan at the exact same moment, go, no. <laughs> 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 yeah it's a little, it's a little unrealistic but hey it's a it's a it's hey, a movie musical yeah. whatever one uh one thing that i like want to point out at this point is this movie is shot on 70 millimeter film and it really shows i mean the colors in this movie are so rich a lot of the characters wear like red shirts or red dresses or whatever one of the iconic shots is Bernardo, he's wearing a red shirt at the beginning and he goes to this red wall and like puts his hand on it and like all the colors are super striking and vibrant and it looks really, really cool. Is that characteristic of 70 millimeter film? Yeah. Like if you say it was shot on 70 millimeter film, I'm like, 
I'm not like, oh yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, one quality of film as opposed to digital cameras like your iPhone or even like more expensive cinema cameras, stuff like that. One thing about traditional physical film that's different is the way that it processes colors. There are different ways to do it. Like you have um, uh, tricolor strips, which are you shoot on three different layers of film, red, green, and blue. And then when you process them, they all combine together to form the image. And so what that leads to is a lot of like vibrancy in the tone of the color, which is a lot more difficult to achieve in digital as what digital does is it just like captures the image and translates translates it to a screen where on film you can have a lot of variety in like the richness and the saturation and the way it looks. And so film in particular is a really great medium, but 70 millimeter film is one of the biggest formats for film that you can shoot on. Gotcha. And that makes it look really, really, really like beautiful. Another like other, not, not too many movies are shot on 70 millimeter at all ever. Not only like the biggest of biggest of Hollywood productions, like Star Wars was 35 millimeter. A lot of Tarantino stuff he'll shoot on 70 millimeter because he's like a film purist. Christopher Nolan is as well, where they both, well, yeah, no, like quite literally they're, they're like, we are devoted to film as like a medium hmm. rather than digital. And so if you, especially in Los Angeles, they're much harder to find in other parts of the world, but there are a lot of theaters who show movies on a 70 millimeter film. Uh, which is always really exciting for me. A good example is the Fox Theater in Westwood uh, shows uh, films on 70 millimeter. And the reason it's so rare is because there really aren't too many 70 millimeter projection systems in the world. Interesting. And so, okay. um, yeah, it's it's just a very like unique way of looking. And this movie does it really well. But anyways, while they're at the dance, Tony and Maria start to dance together and they express their undying devoted love for one another. And they kiss. Bernardo like storms up and like pushes them apart. And <laughs> and in like he's he looks like he's about to fight Tony. And that's when Riff steps in and like proposes the war council meeting thing, whatever. And they say they're gonna meet at Doc's drugstore at midnight. That's the plan. So Bernardo, who is Maria's brother, sends Maria home because they all live in this like big apartment complex. Mm-hmm. And Anita, who is Bernardo's wife. They're not married. Are they not? Oh, pretty sure. No, sure. Girlfriend. She kind of argues with Bernardo about how he's not letting uh, uh, Maria experience the American lifestyle. And that's the whole thing is like here in America, uh, women are free to do whatever they want. That's like the whole idea. And so they go on this roof and that's when the America song comes in and all the girls are kind of talking about like how much better life is in America than Puerto Rico. And all the guys are talking about how much more miserable life is in America than Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of really great lines of dialogue in the song. Some really scathing ones, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everything's free in America. And then Bernardo responds with, for a small fee in America. Yeah. And I thought that was great. There's uh, a lot of that in this song of just, like, back and forth, like. Yeah, I love yeah. that kind of that kind of music. It's kind of like confrontation mm-hmm. in Les Mis, where it's just, like, back and forth, people talking through music. It's mm-hmm. great. But, yeah, it does, like we were talking about at the beginning, it does really shed some good light on uh, a lot of the struggles that Puerto Ricans at this time faced in America and also a lot of the benefits of living in America. Like yeah, there's, there's, um, they mentioned how like Anita sings about how uh, like lots of, of new housing with more space and Bernardo says like lots of doors slamming in our face. And so there's back and forth of what's good and what's bad. And it's just a really unique insight into the time. Yeah. Some of these lines are just brutally honest. There's, you know, I'll, Anita says, I'll get a terrace apartment. And Bernardo says, better get rid of your accent. Yeah. And and so it's a. Yeah. And I, it, the, the song ends with like a, a, a back and forth between Bernardo and 
Anita again, where she's kind of poking fun at him when he's, he says he's having a terrible time in America. And she says, you forget that I'm in America. <laughs> and then uh, She said, um. <laughs> and then it, it ends with Fernando saying, like, when he's back to Puerto Rico, everyone there will, like, cheer for him and give, like, a big cheer. And she says, everyone there will have moved here. <laughs> so, like, like, little bits like that. <laughs> That's really fun in the musical because if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly – she she delivers that line. She's like, everyone there will have moved here. And then it's like followed by this big, like this like big instrumental, like she just dances away. <laughs> yeah. It's this like big dramatic dance number at the very, very end. It's, it's really fun and really funny. Yeah. And it kind of really embraces the vibe of the whole movie of just like, there's like a lot of, there's so much truth in the song, but it's also like a, a catchy as heck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but this is when, after this song, when everyone's kind of going to bed, uh, Tony kind of walks his way into the Puerto Ricans district and is like shouting Maria's name, looking for her because he heard Bernardo say it as he left. And he's like, Maria. And then she's like, she comes out and she's like, shh. And then he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, where are you? And she's like, shh, I'm up here. And he like climbs up the fire escape to see her. But like, you know. Oh, if I were a glove upon your hand. This moment. is the balcony scene. This is, this is the balcony scene. <laughs> For those who are following along at and home. And I got such a kick out of it because she's like, she keeps shushing him because her parents are in the, like in the window right there mm-hmm. sleeping and she doesn't want to wake up. She's like, shh, shh. And he's like, I'm I came so, so far to find you. <laughs> well, well he, he like lowers his voice, but then like, like, and like she, she's like, shushes him until he's nice and quiet. And then he starts singing like the Maria song. And I'm like, Maria. You're going to wake That's him up. That's how you know he's Italian. <laughs> it's the fact that his name Tony didn't tip you off. <laughs> and then she starts singing and they're like belting these like really high notes. And I'm like, you're going to wake up your parents. But anyways, they, they say Musical they love each physics. other. They do all that kind of thing. Meanwhile, at the, at Doc's drugstore, the police show up when the jets are just kind of hanging around and just kind of like, like you guys doing anything suspicious? Cause if you are, we'll lock you up. And they're like, nah, we're young kids. And um, <laughs> this is the moment where they have the Krupke number, which is, it's a great number too. Oh my gosh, America followed up by Krupke is like one of the greatest one, two punches in musical history. Yeah. Um, because yeah, they're talking about how all the excuses that they're going to make if they get arrested of like, I'm so sorry. I'm a demented child whose parents like were never there for me. And so <laughs> like if, if they send us to a judge, what are we going to do? Well, we'll tell the judge about all our struggles and the judge will say this, this child doesn't need imprisonment. They need therapy. And then we'll go to the therapist. <laughs> like <laughs> it's this really long thing, but it's really, really funny and a lot of fun. And then of course ends with the iconic line. G officer Krupke. Crap, crap you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah. And so that's it's, kind of it, a blast. It's just such the music is just so eclectic and so much fun. And like, oh, it, yeah. it just kind of kicks you in the gut every couple minutes by just something completely unexpected. That's yeah. Yeah. I, I, ugh. so the next little bit that happens is, uh, Maria finds out about the rumble. And when Tony comes to visit her, she begs him to kind of stop it. And he's like, I can't stop it. Like, it's not going to be a big thing. And she's like, do it. And he's like, fine. <laughs> and then there's a weird sequence where they talk about their wedding. Is this somewhere? Is that where that happens? Maybe. All I know is that they're like, they say their wedding vows in the song. Oh, what? Yeah. Well, they do the whole like in sickness and health. Oh my gosh. No, I think that's a different song. But uh, yeah, they have this moment. It's like kind of out of nowhere. It's been two days. Yeah. Well, you don't. Two days in musical time is like three years. 
they get to the part, uh, they get to the location under the highway, the two gangs do. And Ice, who's a men- member of the Jets, and Bernardo are preparing a fistfight for the the rights to the streets, I suppose. And then as they prepare, as they like are, are squaring up one another, Tony pops in and is like, guys, don't fight, be friends. And then Bernardo is like, look at this loser. You want to fight me instead? No one's willing to listen to Tony as he tries to stop the rumble, stop the fight, and the port is just being like pushed around. Um, and then rough, rough, <laughs> rough, <laughs> riff, <laughs> riff punches Bernardo as he's kind of like putting his hands on Tony. And so because of that, it's on. And so Bernardo pulls out a knife and then Riff pulls out a knife and they start to circle one another and they're going to do the fighting. And so it's going to be Riff versus Bernardo, the two leaders of the two gangs. Naturally, it could be no other way. It's like the, a bit of a, like a dance fight scene. And it ends with Riff trips Bernardo and it's about to stab him. But Tony runs over and grabs Riff's hand as he's about to bring the knife down and pulls him away. And then like Riff pushes off him, starts running towards Bernardo and like like tries to bring the knife down. Bernardo turns around and stabs Riff in the chest. And oh. there's the iconic shot of like Riff with his arms in the air with like the knife in his hands. Like, oh, what happened? And so he kind of like stumbles backward. And of course, Tony and Riff are best buds. And so Tony sees this and is all sad. And like Riff hands Tony the knife and then falls. And then Tony runs and stabs Bernardo. A lot of not great stuff. Uh, as this all is happening, the police show up. And or like the sirens start going and everyone's like starts to flee. This is this is the moment when I was watching the musical when I uh, when I was watching the movie. I think I was I was in middle school and I was like, wait, wait, this is Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Um, Wait, (laughs) Tony goes to Maria's and before he makes it there, Maria talks with uh, another Puerto Rican whose name is uh, Chino. Chino lets Maria know that Tony killed Bernardo mm-hmm. and Chino's going to go kill Tony. Mm-hmm. And so Tony's running around with a gun. So that's, that's Chino risky. Is. Sorry, sorry. Ch- Chino is running around with a gun. Is he supposed to be like a love interest for Maria? Yes, her fiance. Oh, so she's actually engaged to him. It would uh, assume so. So she's cheating on him with Tony. I, I guess so. Bro. I don't know. It says an arranged engagement. Gotcha. Tony does arrive and talks with Maria about what he did. And he basically convinces Maria that like he didn't mean to or anything. And so they get over it real quick, surprisingly (laughs) quick. She Uh, just moves right past that. (laughs) Yeah. This is what I noticed, however, that uh, Natalie Wood is wearing a bracelet um, while Mm -hmm. filming. And so I did a little bit of research Mm -hmm. and I discovered that the reason she was wearing a bracelet on West Side Story was because she had broken her wrist a little while earlier Mm -hmm. and there was a bump on her wrist because of it. Uh, that was still healing. And so she wore a bracelet to kind of conceal it. And that became a trademark of hers in her future movies was she always wore that bracelet. Cool. So just kind of fun little fact. Yeah, he sh- shows up and basically they decide that they're going to run away and elope um, after he killed her brother. Because sure. That's how you solve all your problems. The the Jets kind of, meanwhile, are reassembling their leader list now. And Ice, uh, who was going to fight Bernardo before Tony showed up, just kind of assumes control. And the song Cool happens where he convinces everybody they just got to play it cool. It's a great song. It's a really good song. And another fun fact about this little bit, the actor who plays Baby John, uh, who's one of the Jets gang members. Not to be confused with Little John. Yeah, not to be confused with Little John, actually collapsed and fainted due to having pneumonia while shooting this scene. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah, it was apparently a very demanding shoot for the song, uh, for this dance number. But they basically decide that 
they they have to find Tony because Chino's on the streets looking for Tony and he has a gun. They're all looking for Tony. Meanwhile, Tony, who's at Maria's apartment, they have a knock on the door and Anita is there. And so Tony escapes through the window, but it's kind of pointless because Anita walks in and then looks out the window and he's like running away. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, she's like, Maria, bruh, that man just killed your, your brother and my fiance. But Maria, they have like a little song about love or whatever. And Maria convinces Anita that she's in love and there's no changing that. And so she... She's about to go run and meet Tony at Doc's, but the Lieutenant Shrank shows up and decides to question Maria. So Maria asks Anita if she can go tell Tony that she's running late because uh, she's been detained. Meanwhile, Anita goes to Doc's to just do this, and she gets there to try and find Tony, but the jets are all there and Tony's hidden in the cellar. They start harassing Anita in a very uncomfortable scene, and... Anita gets very angry. Doc runs in and stops them all from doing anything bad to her. Mm-hmm. But Anita gets very angry and kind of storms out and says, tell Tony that Chino discovered what Maria did and that Chino shot Maria. And so. Wait, why did she say that? She says, she basically says that Bernardo was right about all the, all the jets mm-hmm. that they're, they're all monsters. And that oh, so like, she doesn't want Tony to. Yeah. So she gotcha. basically, she just doesn't want any part of it mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and so she, she runs away and uh yeah doc tells all the jets to beat it after what they did to anita Mm -hmm. and he goes down to the basement and tells tony what happened and tony is devastated and he like runs out into the street shouting chino's name trying to get him to come find him and uh fight him or kill him or whatever it seems like he has a bit of a death wish at that moment and he's Mm -hmm. like he starts crying he's like come please do something and as he's in the playground the basketball playground that they were kind of fighting over at the very beginning maria shows up and he's like, oh, that's convenient. And then they start running towards each other like um, like Marty and Alex and Madagascar. Oh, my God. And <laughs> then Chino pops up and pulls the trigger and shoots Tony in the chest. <gasps> and Tony collapses and all the gangs arrive. And Maria is holding Tony. And she, like, grabs the gun from Chino and, like, like points it at Chino and it's like, I could kill you. And then she points at the the sharks and it's like, I could kill you guys too. And then she's like, at the judge, she's like, I kill all of you guys. How many bullets do I have in here? Kind of thing. And she's, she blames uh, all of their like hatred for one another for their deaths. And so that's kind of when the message gets secured of like, like the hatred that we have for others, quote unquote others is what led to someone as pure and kind hearted as Tony's death. Mm-hmm. And then the police arrive and the two gangs sort of, form this like funeral for Tony where they, they kind of work together and pick him up and start carrying him away. And Maria, uh, walks away with them. And then the, you know, it's like all in one big wide shot, the police like put Chino in their car and drive away. And so gotcha. at the end of the day, this big park that they were fighting over is just empty. And then the blue word is the end fade up and it's all over. So wow. that's a depressing ending. It's sad. Broadway's not known for its happy endings. Yeah. Well, you know, unless it's Newsies, Newsies is a happy ending. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's West Side Story. It's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. I'm I'm really glad I watched it. I'd never seen it before, but thank you for recommending this one. Yeah, it's not. You kind of have to like schedule it in (laughs) to watch it because it's long and it's also yeah, it's 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 a very heavy. Like topically, Absolutely. Um, and then also, yeah, it's it's just it requires 
active immersion, <laughs> you know, to fully appreciate all of the the music and the dancing and, and just the whole production of it. it. It really does demand your full attention for two and a half hours. So it's not, you know, it's not just like a sit down. Let's what should we watch? Oh, let's throw on West Side Story. But <laughs> it's a it's a very, very good and kind of masterful Hollywood production. musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd recommend it. Yeah. That's West Side Story. That is West Side Story. All right. Um, I don't have any clever anything. Um, if you have <laughs> thoughts on West Side Story, yeah. Um, send us an email at offthewatchlist at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram. We haven't been too active on there recently, but we will by the time this comes out. Um, <laughs> and that's at Off the Watchlist Pod. And until next time. We will uh, see you next time. Thank you so much. We won't see you because this is an audio format only. Thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next time.